How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Check Podcast, episode 221. It's our Easter Monday special, Zeke. Easter Monday. Happy, Happy Easter, Easter, Jake. Happy Easter, Zeke. It's super rainy today. It is. Oh, my God. Winter is among us. I know. It's not It's not coming. Winter no. It's not coming. No. Well, it still is coming. We're in autumn. That's true. That is a very yeah. wintry, wet autumn. Yes. Which I'm, you know what? I'm not. I say this. I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more winter person than a summer person mm-hmm. because I'm a winter baby. My birthday's in June. Could be that. But also, I forget how annoying it is driving in the rain until it immediately just starts raining. And I'm like, I can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it, Did you have a good Easter, Easter weekend, Zeke? I did. I didn't do much. I'm on school holidays now, so no, I'm, I'm in good. like relaxation mode, hitting the reset button on everything. We like that. Yeah, get a bit of writing done. I'm going away in the next week, so that's pretty cool. But back yeah. in time to do the podcast, in time. So that's, that's very really, important. Really. <laughs> yeah. Glad you're doing that. <laughs> yeah, so no pre-recorded. <laughs> so that's good. No uh, pre-recorded. That's a very good point. Sometimes yeah. sometimes we've done that. We have. As, as some uh, a Cinema Sideshow alumni may know. It's been yes. a while since we've done like a proper pre-record. Yeah, I'd say it's been well over like a year re- now. Recording an episode out of order. Mm. It's been a while since we've done that. But, but I'm good. I'm good, yeah. yes. Got a lot of chocolate. Oh, very good. That's yes. important. Um, I've got very minimal chocolate. I pretty much just got one thing of Maltesers that Kirsty got me. Yes. Which I've actually like almost completely gone through now. Which is uh, opposed to like earlier Easter's where you just get like a ridiculous amount of chocolate mm-hmm. and you don't you don't put a dent in it. I, I I much prefer like a little little bit that you can, like can enjoy. actually enjoy and manage exactly. But Zeke, yes. Speaking of enjoying and management, I'm going to tie this somehow into the the briefcase full of money for the film of the week, No Country for Old Men. And it's not as bad of a segue as I made it sound like because my trivia fact for the film is that that briefcase of money is the same briefcase in Fargo, which I think is especially. Ironic because these are my two favourite Coen Brothers films. Yeah, and so they have a nice consensus held by quite a few people, I imagine. Oh, fair enough. Uh, I'll throw it over to Josh Brolin. Obviously, this is probably we actually one have of... Josh Brolin on the show. We do. <laughs> How you Hi, going, Josh. Josh? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> um, yeah, no, my my true fact sits around Josh Brolin, who's the um, protagonist of the film. Is probably the most accurate way of describing yeah. him. It's a it's yeah. a definitely. Um, a weird one, which we will most definitely jump into in the second half of the show. But he actually broke his shoulder in a motorcycle accident two days after getting the uh, role for this film. Mm. However, because he gets shot in the shoulder so early into the film, um, <laughs> this ended up being a non-issue. It worked out pretty fine. <laughs> so it ends up being a little bit of a win. Um, bit of a win. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he gets to work with the Coens, which he I always guess, wanted to uh, do. and There is a world, though, where he doesn't get hit buy a car and, and still gets to work with the Coens. This is true. So that that would have been the double win. It would. But I, I, I see where you're coming from, Zeke. Yes. I get you. can't okay. believe this is also the second ever f- film to mm. win Best Picture at the Academy Awards to be produced, directed, and written, written and edited by the same people, or in this case, two people. Yeah. So since James Cameron's Titanic, which we did... Just over a month ago. That's true. Not very long ago. And actually has some additional Oscar-related trivia uh, regarding this film and its connections to everything, everywhere, all at once. Which, of course, was the most recent 
Oscar winning seven part. How many Oscars does this win- film win? Was it was it seven? I reckon it got pretty close. Let's have a look. No, but the, the two that I was thinking of is that you, you talk about, you know, four. these four. Oh, okay. I thought it actually be more than that. But no, you talk about two people um, getting pretty much a lot of the recognition or, you know, being editors, directors, producers, et cetera, et cetera. This is uh, one of the very few times where two directors got the Best Director Award, of course, most recently being the Daniels for Everything Everywhere and then the Coens for this film. But also, much like Everything Everywhere being the first film to win Best Editing that was edited on Premiere Pro, this was the first film to win the editing Oscar for being edited on Final Cut Pro. I've thought some interesting connections there, Z. Very good. We're giving audience so many trivia facts. Yes. So many, just just for free. Well, I think it's good because, you know, obviously we lead in Norman to if this is on the poster behind us. I think it's fair, mm. it's fair to say it's definitely on the poster behind us. Hmm. What? This film is not on the You're poster. You're taking... No, I'm just turn around and look at it. It's that not on there. That is insane. I, I did some double takes. That 2007-2008 period, it was not on there. That blows my mind. You know what is on there, Zeke? What? Twilight. <laughs> we sh- Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Well, I'm sure you'll get your revenge <laughs> for next week's film in the polls. <laughs> We can talk I about that later Okay, in the look, show. We're, we've been running this into the ground, this whole Twilight, you know, yeah. the, the, over No Country thing. But I'm sorry, why is Twilight on the poster and not No Country from? Yeah. <laughs> that is baffling. <laughs> a f- oh, an four time Oscar winning. I know. And yeah. maybe Twilight won five. Who knows? I, I don't in, believe in the it year did. after. It actually won Best Supporting Actor. It wasn't Heath Fletcher. They read the wrong card, Zeke. Actually went to um, uh, Bella's dad in Twilight. He won Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> Truly wild. Uh, but, but Jake, yes. Before we jump into uh, the more, uh, I've completely lost words for this part. Oh my goodness! Um, the second half of the show, we obviously <laughs> always start off with what we've caught in the last week. So, mm. what have you caught in the last week? I caught a few things. Always good. I, I wanted to mention something because we had this for the Easter Sunday. We had some movies on the TV rolling. You know, we're talking with families and whatnot, so I'm not really paying attention. You know, Wreck-It Ralph, Ratatouille, all these animated films. I wanted to give a little shout-out to Brave, because I've still not seen Brave, the Pixar film. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was very interesting having on the background still being able to recognise and foreshadow so many of the narrative beats. Obviously, you can kind of guess what the story's going to be. It's pretty predictable for the most part. But even just, like, seeing it in the quarter mile with no sound, just, like talking to people about just the visual storytelling and predicting like, oh, there's going to be a whip pan here and the character's not going to be there. It's like a comedic mm-hmm. moment. Or like the semiotics of having the crown on the bear, which is meant to remind the audience that it's the mother that's turned into the bear and the royalty. And just like all of that. I felt like such a film snob mentioning all that stuff. But I just, I thought it was interesting when you talk about these classic, not classic, but like these animated films that are very yeah. neatly combed over in, in the editing department, I guess the storyboarding as well. I caught two new films, Zeke. Okay. Now, these are both relatively new films, both released this year, that both focus on entrepreneur figures representing big companies in the 1980s. That's a good... That's a good... there. (laughs) I know the two films that you're talking about. That was a very good way of lumping the two together. I'm glad. Well, I'll probably start talking about Air. It'll be the first one I talk about. It's the first one I saw, so I had to to go to the movie theatre for this one. I had to sneak it in. 
Um, yeah, it's funny because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, like us predicting that it looks like a very feel-good film based on the trailers and like all the all the clips of people popcorn, high-fiving. Popcorn film. Very popcorn enjoyable film. And it very much is like a feel-good kind of funny sports biopic, exactly what you would expect from Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, which I don't think I realized this. I think it's the first time Ben Affleck's directed Matt Damon in a role. That is pretty interesting. Yeah, which kind of feels a little bizarre that's the first time. But, yep, very straightforward retelling of the story of Nike and how they nabbed Michael Jordan as, you know, the sponsor for their shoe. It kind of it feels like friends just kind of working on a film together. Mm. I noticed a lot of the cast are sort of delegated to, like, their one or two sets. So very, very much like, oh, we're going to have like our friend Jason Bateman come in and do all, the, all his scenes in these two sets and then we're going to move on and Ben Affleck's got all his scenes in his office and this thing and th- there's not a lot of um, crossover yeah. other than Matt Damon who's doing a lot of the travelling and the salesman and all that but look, like I said, it's pretty straightforward it's not going to blow your mind but it did enough little things where I kind of just appreciated it where I walked out being like I enjoyed that and I wouldn't have a problem recommending that to people okay and it's just like little things like it's very self-aware about this taking place in the past in the late 80s and it starts with the 80s montage which you just expect of everything now but every now and then they will sort of jump almost forward in time especially there's a there's a scene where Sonny, the matt damon character is, is doing a big monologue you know trying to amp up michael jordan for why he should choose nike as his sponsor sort of thing and he talks about how like he's the living legend and he's the one that's going to survive all the you know, the turmoil and all the bad news press and it will like flash to snippets of like all these things that he's done in the past. And it's like, it's like weirdly self-aware of the future of Michael Mm -hmm. Jordan in that moment. And there's also like these written texts, like the values of Nike as a company. And it's, it will every now and then randomly cut to those lines and values and juxtapose them with what Sonny's doing in terms of he's like scrappy, you know, underdog story of like trying to convince just like little things like that that I thought were interesting. And especially... I don't want to be too spoilery, but there there's a moment where you're spending this whole story from his perspective being the underdog, mm-hmm. and it, they're very lazily um, established, like, the competitors and, like, their market share, and they just put the text up to sh- kind of show why he's the underdog, why the other companies have, like, the big advantage over him, and they have bigger budgets, you know, to pay people, and blah, 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 blah. But what I thought was so interesting is that by the time to get you get to the end, the film actually sort of twists it, where you realize it's actually Michael Jordan, and particularly his mother, who's played by Fola Davis, who is more so the underdog than him, and that you've been following this story and you're rooting for him, but you realize, like, there's still power, though. He's still a corporation, yeah. and he's still just a guy, like a good basketballer. But nevertheless, and I didn't realize this was actually the birth of athletes having a percentage of ownership on every shoe that's sold based on their likeness. I didn't realize right. that's where like originated, and that's that's sort of like a reveal at the end of the film. Which, of course, if you know the history, you would know that, I suppose. But just little things like that, the film would just pepper those ideas and those things in the film. That I was like, you know what, that was fun. I appreciated it. So, air, I guess it's still in cinemas. Check it out. I also saw Tetris. Yes. Mm. Now. Wasn't as big of a fan of this one. No, I could see that. Bit of a surprise. Yeah. Well, look, I think I didn't really know what to expect. I the story does seem kind of wild. This whole 
entanglement of webs and lies and deceptions over IP ownership and distribution rights for Tetris. And again, in the 80s, I think this is a few years earlier than 88 where Air takes place. But it kind of felt like the film was running this crazy web. And even halfway through the movie watching it, I was like baffled. I was like, wow, I didn't realize how ridiculously convoluted Mm. (laughs) this was. There were companies that didn't actually own the rights, selling the rights to other companies and other people. And it just got into this crazy. So it's like, I can understand you looking at that on paper and be like, wow, this would be like a great political spy thriller, you know, kind of like almost like Argo in the sense, especially going into enemy territory, which is the Soviet union in the eighties. And, I unfortunately found that to be like the most boring part of the film, which is crazy because that that should be the exciting part. Is yeah, the well, deception can... and the you know spies taking photos of each it's other. It's definitely and... what the billing and the trailer is showing you. Oh, absolutely, and that's what it's trying to be. Absolutely, it's just every now and then there's like a little. I keep using the word sprinkle, but there's this moment in the film. So you got Hank Rogers, uh, who's you know travels to the Soviet Union and. He obviously doesn't speak the language. He's obviously speaking in English, and he t- he does live in uh, Japan with his girlfriend, and they have a family, or I should say, wife. They have a family, and she's actually quite involved in the entrepreneur side of it, of him getting these rights and getting the game on arcade machines and getting the handheld rights for Nintendo so they can put it on the Game Boy. All that's like in there, and it's interesting, even though it's completely brushed over. I'd probably r- rather a documentary about all the technical side of of how this all worked, but. There's a great moment where he finally convinces the creator of Tetris that he's not, you know, just some capitalistic guy trying to take advantage of the game Mm. and making a quick buck. Like, he's actually very enthusiastic about video game design and the artistry behind it. And they end up going to a local nightclub. And he's shocked because they go there and everyone's singing um, the final countdown. And they're all singing in English. And he's like, like, oh, wow, this is, like, crazy. Like, how do they all know the lyrics? And the guy, Alexi, replies, he says something along the lines of, good art knows no borders, or transcends all borders. Mm. Basically talking about, and much like the Queen's Gambit does with chess, how art and and good, you know, smart creations can transcend language. Yes. And almost be bilingual in its own nature, and how any culture and any person can appreciate it. Yeah, and that's, it. A, that's a big part of the... The selling and, and well, the mm. big one of the big themes and key takeaways in Queen's Gambit. Yeah, oh, I absolutely loved the way they did that in Queen's Gambit. And you're right, like people with different languages, but having the appreciation for each other through gaming, through the chess, and those little snippets that we found in Tetris are so few and far between in favor of the boring spy political thriller that honestly just made everyone look like dumb caricatures of each other. Mm. Like, all the rival bidders are all just like these, you know, big stereotypical, you know, ha, 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 I have all the money, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna buy this game, and I don't care what it takes, and it's just like, oh, so boring, you know, it's like, I know it's based on a true story, but none of these characters are interesting, and even, you know, Hank himself, they did so little to show, like, his true enthusiasm for, like, game design and the artistry. Like, it's in there, but not enough to offset all the stupidly dumb decisions he makes throughout the whole film, like flying to the Soviet Union and just like asking everybody, like, oh, where can I find this company? Where can I find this super secret company? It's like, dude, they're going to kill you. <laughs> it, I, I don't know. It's just like all these decision-making just seems dumb to me. Yeah, like it didn't really capture the danger, like you said, that Argo does. Exactly. That, that, yeah. that weight. And obviously using such a... Uh, 
the way Affleck talks about it in, mm. in Argo, you know, there's that serious and gravitas there, but obviously there's the light-hearted caper of right. using a, a film to sort of get them out of there, right? Yeah. Like that's the the point. And yeah, you're hundred percent right. Like if you handle that poorly, your messages get lost, and it's almost like it, maybe it had a tonal clash. Did it have a on what it wanted to be? I think I, I wouldn't say it was the tone. It was just the film hadn't convinced me enough of this character's like obsession and eagerness to to get the rights of this game that negated all the stupid decisions. I mean, he's straight up told multiple times, this is the Soviet Union, you're going into enemy territory, you're lying to government because you're pretending to be a tourist to get into here. And at one point, they threatened to kill his whole family. And he's just like, ah, I'm still going to try and get the rights. As I, I think the film needed to convince me more of his enthusiasm for him to put all of that on the line. He puts everything on the line. And you can put it at the start of your film. This is based on a true story. It doesn't mean you're exempt from having to motivate all the characters' decisions. Mm. It's supposed to all make sense. So, look, I didn't hate it. Like I said, there's a lot of those interesting snippets in there. Um, I just thought it was a bit of a lost opportunity. I wish the film focused more on that whole, like, you know, art trumps all borders. And that's in there because you've got Soviet Union on the brink of the end of their communism sort of cycle, so to speak. And that motivates a lot of the characters within the Soviet Union of a lot of bidders just trying to get the game off them for free, thinking, well, you know, they're communists. That's not what they want power. They don't want money. And then people within the Soviet Union being like, we know this is all about to fall apart. Mm. So we are going to try and extract as much money out of deal as we can. That's all very interesting. But again, lost in a bunch of caricatures and dumb characters. and Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Missed opportunity is the best way to put it. I, I didn't hate the film by any stretch of the imagination. But there were a lot of problems I, I had with it, like I mentioned. There yeah. we go. How about you, Zeke? What did you watch in the last week? Uh, I caught a bunch of new films too. Oh, very um, good. So that's kind of always nice. Um, I've caught a lot of films from the last year or so. So I jumped on to, um, I think it's Amazon Prime it is, the mm. one of the latest, A is it an A24 film, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Yes, that is A24, I there believe. You go. Um, that's a very new drop, I think. Yeah. Very new drop. Yeah, so I gave it a watch. Um, <laughs> it basically is, what, um, Millennials meets horror film. And okay. this, it definitely follows the... Uh, comedy horror route, not in the obscene comedy horror of something like uh, Scary Movie, but more mm. along the lines of something like Us or right. even Nope. To Ready or Not, that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Ready or Not, but you, okay. you, you probably uh, bang on the money there. It's definitely a film that ironically is pointing at how stupid and self-absorbed and narcissistic... Uh, millennials and obviously mm. more. I think they're actually not just millennials; it's Gen Z, and then obviously right. even more so. Wow, we're getting into Gen Alpha. I mean, if this film's made in ten, fifteen years with Gen Alpha in mind, <laughs> God knows they'll be all having AirPods in while they're talking to each other. Um, but it, look, I I thought the film was was cute, and it had moments where it was making me laugh quite a lot mm. from a horror point of view. Obviously, it's centered around a, a childish teenage game called Bodies, 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 which I think must be more an American staple because I've never played it here in Australia. But yeah, I definitely haven't heard. Essentially, of that. it's like mur- it's murder in the dark. You know, lights go out. Oh, okay. If you touch someone, they're dead. Of course, what happens is a character ends Dies up actually real. dead. Oh no! Um, but it's and then it sort of unpacks, sort of everyone turning on each other. Simple bottle horror film in that mm. sense, and. 
obviously its differing factor is the fact that it's centered around these millennials slash gen z people who have all got the caricatures i i be hyperbolized mm. hyperbolized caricatures of those particular generationals cultural identity i guess like socio-economic hyperphone use that kind of hyperphone use constantly referring to themselves uh gender politics right okay um, yep sexual identity politics uh pure narcissism throwing mental health around lightheartedly these right. things that are obviously it's a very cynical depiction of these our generation mm. pretty much um but the saddest part is you're watching it and some of it is like, well, that probably is true. This is probably actually how this... And this is a collection of, like, always sunny in Philadelphia level, like, horrible people. Oh, okay. Particularly Pete Davidson's character is, like, despicable. <laughs> the fact he's in this is enough. Um, there you go. It's fine. I, I wouldn't say it was super thought-provoking. If anything, it just made me feel a bit tra- like tragic. Right. Um, like, wow, like if this, like I'm, one can only think what this particular, um, if we switched the generation, we push it back another generation, mm-hmm. this is the generation alpha version of this horror film, it would just be, like I said, and it's obviously, it's tough now, obviously as a high school teacher, you're seeing this generation coming through and the way they socially act in a dynamic mm-hmm. versus the way you acted and you thought, you might have been rude at the time, and then you right. think, wow, this generation coming up is even more socially, uh, well, challenging, or at least mm. more social, socially foreign right? than any other generation before. We could just be, be becoming old men, Zeke. I guess. I don't know about you, but having a conversation with your headphones in is pretty rude, but mm. um, that oh, might be me no, getting grumpy I've, and old. I feel like I've seen... I don't know. It is what it is. It is I mean, really... that, that ties into the films, themes of the film of the week. In, in a much less violent way, potentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a horror film, as you say. Absolutely. Maybe that film does it too. Um, I've got two <laughs> other films. Um, I managed to catch Bullet Train. Which, oh, interesting. Um, God, I'm loving what they're... I love this last five years of Brad Pitt's life and career. <laughs> yeah, he's actually done quite a lot of different fun things but yeah in the last I years. like honestly in a post Angelina Jolie not to get too entertainment tonight on this show oh. but in a post Angelina Jolie I don't know, at least three four years ago oh I didn't realize that I'm so out of the uh, um the it was a long time <laughs> today tonight and I mean he became <laughs> like chill Zen dude who right. is living up you know smoking up having a good time Fair um enough. but you know, it's all all credit to Brad Pitt. I like you said, I like that he's doing these kind of more different, kooky, weird films. Essentially, Bullet Train is just, a, I would say, a Japanese version of of something like John Rick or John Wick. I mean, it has the action set pieces and, okay. and absurd is is and probably even more absurdist. It probably is a nice. Ironically, I found a lot of likenesses to John Wick and everything everywhere all at once. Oh, okay. Not maybe in terms of the oh, like the tonality, I guess, of, of everything the, everywhere at like once. You like the energy of it? Yeah, the energy, yeah. that high pace. I mean, when we have the first fight scene and everything everywhere, mm. we're sort of getting an idea of what the tone is going to be. Obviously, there's a lot more uh, emotional layers mm. in there and, and some cool subject matter being explored, but this was very much just... A cool, fun, 
um, action set piece film. Yeah. Um, it kind of gave me Soderbergh vibes. Well, I'm I'm actually going to talk about the other film I watched, which was Operation Fortune, and uh, that was Guy Ritchie's new film. Um, that was more Soderbergh to me, like more traditional Soderbergh. And once again, just not where I think Guy Ritchie's at his best. Right. I think, you know, you watch a film like The Gentleman or Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, it's like he clearly works really well with these high-paced mm. crime dramas. But, yeah, for for me, I to finish on Bullet Train, it's a lot of fun. Um, the way it's structured, there's some great performances in there, like Brad Pitt's amazing in it. Um, Joey King from Kissing Booth, she's in it, and she's pretty great in it. Yeah. Uh, Michael Shannon's briefly in it. Oh, a nice. bit of fun. So, a lot of really good... Definitely opens up to a sequel. Um, we could it easily... It seems very like, yeah, they're going for a franchise thing. New yeah, Oceans type. Yeah, it's that know. proof of concept franchise for sure. I think it's probably based... I wouldn't be surprised if I found out it was based off some form of like anime or, or oh, okay. manga because it had that tone to it. Yeah. Um, that obscene like that obscene craziness to it. But it was a lot of fun. Would actually recommend it. Whereas Operation Fortune, which mm. I caught, um, that's, you know, starring Jason Statham, Hugh Grant. Um, and... Yeah, I it was fine. It just had pacing issues. Mm-hmm. It had a really good concept, this idea of of they have to do this heist and this great big warlord has an affinity for this star Hollywood actor. So it had the same sort of concept to something like The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, but boy, <laughs> did The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent handle that idea better. Yeah, it was a lot more meta. In, in that and it, version. But it works. Yeah. You know, it's like... And I think the reason why the unbearable weight of massive talent works is the same reason why something like Tropic Thunder works. Because mm. it didn't mind turning itself to 100. Right. Like, Nick Cage is just going full Nick Cage in that film. I would love to do that <laughs> film on the show. It is... It's one of the most enjoyable 100 minutes you get. It, mm. 20, I think the last 20, it sort of gets a bit weird, but... The first two acts are just phenomenal mm. and so funny. And this film has moments where it's kind of funny, but I think when you've got someone like Statham in there who's, yeah, he's, he's like, he's fine. I've, I've never been yeah. a massive Jason Statham yeah. fan. I was just thinking, I was like, can, can we just say, like, who cares about him? Yes. <laughs> like, just straight up, who cares? Middle-aged men. Jason Middle-aged like. men. That's about all I've got. <laughs> You say uh, that name, and I'm just like, I want to go have a nap. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, his cast around him didn't really elevate it. Right. So it ended up being another one of those very meh Guy Ritchie films. I've never met a director that's so hot cold. Mm. Like, I, I can't stand... You mean, like, consistently? Stuff. Yeah, he just... He's so confusing. Mm. As a... as Because a, for every... Like, the gentleman, you go, oh, he's back. This is what he's good at. Yeah, yeah. He goes and puts out a Robin Hood. Or he goes <laughs> and puts out an Aladdin. And you're like, what? What kind of... Like, what... Like, if we do the... Have we done a Guy Ritchie director's corner? No. No, Boy, that'd be, that'd be like a Nick Cage... That'd be like a Nick Cage if we had an actor's corner. Yeah. Like, <laughs> is he good? Is he bad? Like, we don't know. Yeah. But 
I think he's good at a very niche particular type of film, and anything that defers from it just doesn't hit the mark. For I might me. say something a bit controversial here, but I'm kind of... With the Coens, I feel like they're a little bit hit or miss sometimes as well. That is insane. No, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm looking at this. Like, to be fair, I've only seen a few of these. I haven't seen a lot of their films, but Burn After Reading, I did not yeah, enjoy I, at I, all. the only one. Um, oh Brother, What Art Thou? It's fine. I enjoyed it. It's great. Didn't think much of it. Um, to be fair, I mean, I like Tragedy of Macbeth. Inside Lewin Davis is excellent, of course. Raising Big Arizona is good. I haven't seen that one yet, that's true. Hail Caesar's the only other one I sit there and go. Bit <laughs> shrug in the air. Okay. I haven't seen Lady Killers, though. I've heard that's pretty meh, too. Okay. I, will, I mean, they've definitely had more hits than misses. Yeah, I'll Guy Ritchie for me, just, I don't get it, but that's my opinion. That's what I've watched in the last week. So, three films, so a net positive yeah. week for me. I've only, you know, I've only watched 18. <laughs> net positive. 18... Report it to the ATO, you're net positive. Jeez. <laughs> Wouldn't be paying any tax for the way I'm going. Oh, yeah, no. Nah. I'm, I'm hoping to get all my money back in tax deductibles. You know, I've just crossed $12,000 in tax deductibles. This week, and that doesn't include things I bought for Skin and Blister, which technically doesn't count. But hey, you buy a hard drive, that's pretty easily deductible for your business. (laughs) So I'm definitely not going to pay any tax back. I bloody hope not. Well, did you want to talk about anything else before we move into? No, that was my that was my career update. That was a clever segue. (laughs) My tax discussion. Very nice. (laughs) Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week, of course, as Jake disgruntledly mentioned. In the first half of the show, we're done with we're done with we're the done Twilight comparison. It's done. But, it's done. It's um, done. You guys got the chance to vote on what film we watched from the two thousands. There were two films up for grabs. Twilight didn't get the chocolates, but Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching No Country for Old Men. What's in the satchel? A bowl of money. He's just a guy who happened to find my money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. Did you go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back and tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. What's this guy supposed to be, the ultimate badass? You don't understand.
Lewin Moss stumbles upon dead bodies. Two million dollars and a hoard of heroin in a Texas desert. But a methodical killer, Anton Sugar, comes looking for it. With local sheriff Ed Tom Bell hot on their trail, the roles of prey and predator blur as a violent pursuit of money and justice collide. Bum, bum, now, as you said, Jake, this ranks in your top two Coens, which is pretty spicy. It does. I think for me, and I probably should have checked because I have seen this before, of course. I don't remember which episode it would have been that I saw this. Um, but I feel like for me, when it comes to those two, No Country for Men and Fargo, I feel like Fargo, for me, that's like my personal number one. Like, I love Fargo so much. It's so funny. It's so well-crafted, so violent. The, you know... The, uh, the Marge performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so, so absolutely brilliant. Um, but with No Country for All Men, this is like, this is, it's kind of in the same reason why I gave Once Upon a Time in the West, like a five-star uh, score on Letterboxd. And since I just, I appreciate the filmmaking so much mm-hmm. that it, it just has to be on top of the list for that reason. Even though I think I probably prefer Fargo, but this might be like their masterpiece in terms of them as filmmakers. And like you said, they didn't just direct it, they edited it as well. They wrote it. And this is based on a Cormac McCarthy novel, which I haven't read. I've read The Road, of course. And we probably talked about The Road. We on have a little. show at, at some point. Um, this is just phenomenal. An absolutely phenomenal adaptation, a phenomenal story. Ballsy story as well. The way it's told, there's so much. It's so quiet. Yeah. It's so hauntingly quiet. Um, but I have to ask you, Zeke, before I ask you what your main, I guess, takeaways from No Country for Old Men, what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? <laughs> I can't say I've lost much in a coin toss. Um, I'm trying to think, actually. Yeah, what have I lost in a coin toss? The coin? The coin. <laughs> no, I've, I've probably got to keep the that as well. The ability to go first in the pool game? Yeah. I don't know. But the thing is, he only does this twice in the whole movie. I forgot about that. No rule of three. No. There's there's very I- iconic moments and objects and obviously he's got the um I forget what it's called, like the pole it's like it's like an air pressure gun essentially, yes, which is obviously what they a, use um, to slaughter animals. Yeah, it's a cow cow like prod gun. Yeah. Um what I love about I mean that that's obviously such an iconic like weapon in terms of him as a villain and just like he's the incarnation of evil, Anton, mm-hmm. which we can get into that. But I love that the coin is also something that's so, you know, that that was part of the zeitgeist at the time. And he only does it twice in the film. It's actually very rare. I think that's a mark of a lot of great films is that they don't, some things they don't do very often, but they leave their mark in society. It's like quotes. You know, you look at the Darth Vader quote. It's like the quote everyone uses is not actually the quote he says. Mm. Like the, the, the zeitgeist sort of takes it and reinterprets it and, and spreads it like a virus throughout the world. Yes. I feel like I'm getting on a real long tangent here, but I don't think it's a big tangent. Yeah. I think it's a it's a philosophical film at its mm. core. I, I think, to be honest, it's one of those films that when you watch, and I remember the first time I watched this film, I was not used to the. You know, I probably was too young to fully understand the purpose of the film. Right. Um, I think this the first time I watched this must have been a blockbuster rental or something oh, like okay. that. Going way back. Um, and I watched the film. And you get confused because it's not exactly chronological or, or certain, well, it's chronological to an extent, but it kind of jumps a little bit and mm. it obviously intercuts and there's this man, Chagur, who is a little, you know, 
completely um, aloof in his direct motives. Mm. He's not a conventional antagonist or villain. Well, a lot um, of the characters, their motivations aren't immediately obvious. I mean, even you know, Llewellyn, which is very interesting. Is that why they did Inside Lewin Davis? They like the name Llewellyn? Yes. <laughs> but like even Lewin his, Llewellyn. it's like there are multiple times where you could sit there and like ask, well, why are you still holding on to the money? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I think it all makes sense. Like it all... A lot of it is almost like self-evident in the sense, but you're right. The film doesn't hold your hand in terms of, you know, here are the very clear motives for all the characters, and and like here's exactly why they're doing what they're doing. The film lets it all unfold in in its visual storytelling. I love that so much. Yeah, and, and obviously ironic, you know, we you're 100 percent right. It, it doesn't hold your hand or anything. And then of course, when you unpack a lot of Coen brother films, or at least the most prominent Coen brother films. Mm. This is not abnormal for them, you know. You right. look at Big Lebowski. It's, you know, it's a very loose plot about Lebowski owning money, but he doesn't mm. really know. He knows it. He doesn't own it personally, so he goes on this sort of loose quest to find out yeah. who this it's not Lebowski is. Like the comedic is. version of this film. <laughs> yeah, and you know, obviously, while that's happening, there's a bowling tournament happening mm. in parallel, and um, you know. Like, you're probably right, it's much more light-hearted, and it is always really nice, you know, that those is in the director's corner, how we see Cohen, the Coens are, are happy to genre shift, or they're happy to mm. shift between something like this, which is probably one of, if not their most serious film. Um, yeah, well, just, like, the violence is very brutal and in your face. I mean, you've seen people's, like, hands get completely disjointed from their body, and the number of times that characters are just taking five minutes to you know, undress and recover and to, you know, repair bullet wounds from their skin. And it's like, it, it's not the most violent film I've ever seen, but it treats the violence with, with in your face with yeah. such delicacy. It's I mean, uncomfortable to look at. Although there are violent sequences in things like Fargo mm. or in, you know, Evening True Grit or I'm looking here, you know, Tragedy of Big Beth, there are very brief stints um, of violence. Blood Simple is probably the closest I can think to something that has the same sort of takes of time. This mm. is tonally the definitely the darkest and the most dry. Mm. Um, dry is a really good word for it. And again, it goes to the fact that there's virtually no score for this film. There is, there is a score that I think has almost been exclusively reserved for the credits and the scores by Carter uh, Burnwell. But that adds to the dryness of the film is, is the silence of the film and the fact that it even opens up with the sun rising and you know, casting light onto the vast American desert. It's very much a postmodern mm. Western. And, you know, we've done many a postmodern Westerns, and I there's so many, like, visual elements in here. I'm like, well, they, you know, Vince Gilligan shot Breaking Bad in 2007. He probably just saw this film and <laughs> walked right over the set. And like, all right, we're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and even some of the themes in terms of, like, innocent bystanders being caught in the game or, or the characters call it the jackpot in this scenario. Yeah, would, it would fade a free will. It. You yeah, know, it's yeah. that. And this is something that is a is an umbrella um, concept mm-hmm. that is definitely discussed in multiple Coen Brother films. You know, we talk about Lebowski and, and um, Fargo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fact that there's that line between predestinated fate yep. and free will mm. and the consequences and the, the fine balance between the two and the consequences of said actions the fact that you know sugar is such a relentless villain that is never really ever i mean to the point where in the latter parts of the film when they're involved in a severe car accident they don't stop 
Mm. It's never ending. Lewin's choice when he seemingly stumbles onto the jackpot, as you mm. say, is that that question of fate, that call to action. But it's the relentless push and the fact that he was always going to end up dead. Mm. It was just a question of when. Yeah, well, exactly. And like even the one of the notes I wanted to make early in the film that kind of retroactively um, isn't the case anymore. And like you said, that goes into the, was it a predetermined... Yeah, fate, um, fate and free will. Fate and free will is that he chooses... First off, we, we're introduced to the characters very similar in terms of them being stoic and kind of scary, but they're in control. And obviously, one is just a complete psychopathic murderer, mm. and the other is, <clears throat> you know, a hunter, so to speak. But he sort of calmly observes and stumbles into this big, you know, gr- again, great visual storytelling of just all the trucks and the bodies and the dogs all riddled with bullets. And, you know, he takes the money... But what does he do? He has some resemblance of a heart. He goes back with water. He wants to go and give the one person who survived water. And at first I thought this was his... You are now doomed because you know, you're back in the scene of the crime and you've been, been caught by, you know, supposedly the Mexicans up in the ute who popped the tire. But the fact of the matter is he was doomed the second he took the money because of the tracker. Mm. So I think that also plays into what you were saying about at what point is your fate doomed? Yes. And then it's the fact that he then goes back to, mm. you know, his sort of homestead yep. and doesn't reveal any information. Essentially, he's mm. just like, well, I'm out of here. I've got the money. I'm done. <laughs> I'm leaving this life behind. Um, and I think that that sort of plays into it. It's like, yeah, like I said, you know, when I said, oh, he's the protagonist of this film and you you hesitate, you you know, we are we really supporting Lewin's actions? But this is where we're talking about that dry tonality here. Mm. If anything, it's Tommy Lee Jones's character. It's Tom Bell is probably the protagonist, or at least the mm. most righteous observer of the world around him. Yeah, you know, well, he's sh- the one with the badge. Yep, he has the opening monologue and is also the last person you see in the last shot of the film. So you're right. There's sort of evidence for all three of our main characters that they could be the protagonists. And I think what really sells it for, yeah, Ed Tom Bell or Sheriff Ed Tom Bell is that he's the one that starts the film with the thesis of, you know, I think about my grandfather and my father and they were all sheriffs as well. And, you know, a lot of them didn't even carry weapons or guns. And how would they react in this world that has gotten so violent? And, of course, that is the big sort of circular bookend moment towards the end of the film when I think it's his uncle that he's talking to who's like, no, the world, and in particular this country, has been violent and unforgiving for a very long time, mm. not just in your time. And, you know, may- maybe your your grandfather and your father could have held themselves against the crazy, violent, psychopathic behaviour that we're dealing with in, say, 1980, where this film takes place. But the fact that this, this has prevailed, this sense of violence and horror and i guess we're already in the spoilers i suppose but like the fact that you know that he gets out alive and there are many times where he could have died he could have interacted with anton Mm. he could have you know walked into that hotel room and got shot in the head with an air pressure gun but he's able to retire and look back on his service in a sense of like did i do enough did i do good enough yeah violence still prevails well, it's, you know, and I've got the speech here. And what mm. I find really interesting is oh, I can put the speech here. So it's 
It was cold and there was snow on the ground and he rode past me and kept going. Never said nothing going by. He just rode on past and he and he has his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. And when he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire in the horn the way people used to. And mm. I could see the horn from the light inside of it about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he, he was going and on head... And he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And then mm. I knew whenever I got there, he would be there. And then I woke up. It's and it's funny. Oh, look, obviously, Tommy Lee Jones does that way better than I did it. <laughs> um, Should have hired you, Zeke. Uh, yeah, I know. But what I find, what he goes on to say after winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, I'm pretty oh, sure, or at least nice. nominated, was... Um, he goes, the last speech is a contemplation of home, a hope, a dream about however dark and the cold the world might be, however long the ride through it might be, that at the end that you know uh, that you will go to your father's house and it will be warm or to a fire mm. that your father has carried and built for you. The last sentence of the movie is, and then I woke up, it's a contemplation of the idea of hope or is it an illusion? Is it a dream? And if it is, is that dream real? So you're 100% right what you're saying there, that consensus of he's reflecting on his own career, he's reflecting on his own mortality. Yeah. Um, he's reflecting on the mortality or the, the, the morticious state of uh, America over mm. that over that generational time. And it's a similar sort of consensus to what goes on with what Jeff Bridges is talking about in Hell or High, High Water. Water. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that film Tommy, a lot re-watching this one <laughs> yeah Tommy Sheridan has clearly derived a lot of his dryness and his <laughs> respection of on. obviously he's going more from the root of capitalism rather right. than a socio-cultural point of view or a violence point of view mm. the the increasing in, in firearms crime and, and such whereas the, the conversations I think Bridges is having in that film are more reflective of that yeah that the result of the capitalistic in a post-global finance GFC mm. world which is a massive point of of con, at least context in Hell yeah. High Water, whereas this is in so a, this pre- is a bit global, more contemporary, yeah, right? This is a yeah. pre GFC world, even from a filmmaking point of view, mm. uh, GFC has not happened at this point, um, and I think that that does affect the reading because at this point in time, one of the key points of focus when this film's being made, not when it's set, is you know you're in the middle of Afghanistan, mm. gun control was consistently been a problem in america for 20 especially the last 20 years Mm. um and at this point in time was definitely spiking in its uh acts of violence the socio-economic the bubble's about to burst right so there's a big difference between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer (laughs) but what's interesting about what this film does and the way it uses in terms of semiotics you got the money Mm. you got drugs you got all of these things that actually hold very little material value. I mean, with the exception of him spending $16 an hour on a hotel room, what opportunities do you have to spend any of this money? And of course, I'm talking about Llewellyn, but the fact that this is these are the kinds of things that are corrupting people, and this pays off at the end when the two kids, they're bribed to not say anything. And like the kid, you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm here to help. Like, I'm happy to help you. I don't want money. But as soon as he's given the money, the, t- the two kids start arguing. Well, I want my half. You still have your shirt. It's like it it 
almost exists purely just to show how mm. corruption can begin and start in youth and then grow up where all this violence exists around people just wanting these things. And, you know, compare it to some of the hell of high water of these other films where there is a more material use for it. Yeah. But here well, it's just like, here's what it is. This is what people are chasing after, but that's not what the film's about. It's about the violence that's inflicted on people because of it. Yeah, and, and it's, you're 100% right. And what makes it so ironic is the fact that, yeah, Sugar at the end gets away. Mm. He's the one with the money. But he is, you know, at this point in time, is the most dissociative person yeah. of society. The person that we all can sit here and go, what is he actually going to use the money for? Yeah. You know, like... Is He's actually really... going to build a hospital, Zeke. And this is... And, That's the alternative ending. You know, he honestly has that. It's that Michael Caine <laughs> line. And some people just want to watch the world burn. Um, but he has that sort of mantra to him. The fact that the, the per, like our antagonist does succeed in their goal by mm. the end of it. But to what end? Like you said, like... Our the person we're following, trying to run away, Luen. He's not. Um, he's got uh, seemingly no motive to where he's going to spend this money. How yep. he's going to spend this money? It's it's honestly just just living. Yeah. And you know, our other main character is you know Bell. When Bell was at the back end of his career, he's worked very hard. He's got his land. He's pretty much fully retired. Everyone is surprised he's still working. Yeah. Like he's served his time, and. Yeah, it is incredibly interesting because then you've got Sugar, who's now a millionaire, but <laughs> we have seen on countless occasions he has no interest for people, no emotion, no compassion. Mm. What truly is he going to use this money for? Yeah, what was the point? Everything what was that was in point? his path is being destroyed. Yes. And it's like the goal was the goal. You know, there was no logical reasoning. And that, you know, that goes back to what Woody Harrelson's character was saying in the hospital of, you know, maybe I can do a deal with him. No, you can't. There is no bargaining with this guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he would do, he will kill you and kill your wife and do whatever it takes to get the money. But you're right. To what end? What is the point? And all he does is just like, not only killed a bunch of people that were in the game, quote unquote, feel very better call Soul-esque saying that. But also a bunch of innocent people throughout the film who had nothing to do with any of this. They I were always, taxi drivers. And... Always forget Woody Harrelson's in this film. And I know it's such a cause weird because he, he has like such a small role. <laughs> this film almost <laughs> this film in in a lot of ways does feel like a PTA film, and it's ironic mm. that you know you've got, um, geez, I'm blanking. Um, there will be blood. There Same will be blood, here. Yeah. Um, because it does have those shot sort of... shot across the road from each other, essentially. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's great. Both I love drinking that. each other's milkshakes. Well, I think they were doing. I read somewhere that were doing a test with one of the oil rigs that created that a it. cloud in the sky, and then that that to shut down production in No Country because of that cloud. <laughs> so they really were rivals, not only in production but at the Oscars yeah, <laughs> at big, the next year, uh, two thousand seven. Is that like arguably one of the biggest years in in Oscar history? Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that these two, you know, films that are just so authentic to the stories that they're telling come out hand in hand. It's like what a great weekend to go to the cinema. <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is, it is quite interesting, you know, um, when you you sort of contemplate that, and I think that's what makes Bell's character the most important in the film because mm. of his sort of reflective. Um, 
thing, and, and like you've already brought up the whole moral ambiguity side, you know, the fact that Chigurh is this prime example of ambiguity, moral yep. ambiguity in the film. He is a vessel of it because, um, you know, even the little things when he instigates the monetary sort of war between those two kids and that right. argument, um, or even the fact that he decides life by flipping coins mm. or, or seemingly having these arbitrary measures of who lives and who dies. Mm. Um, is absolutely frightening. Well, it um, goes back to, and I think the character's name is Carson that Woody Harrelson's playing, where he he says something extremely interesting because we're watching this film, we associate Sugar as you know this embodiment of evil, completely psych you know psychopathic behavior. There seems to be no rhyme or reason, or, or not even that, but just there's no emotion to what mm. he's doing, one way or the other. Um, fear, hatred, joy. He doesn't necessarily get joy out of murdering people. He just does these things. But what is suggested by Carson is that there is a set of principles there for the choices that he is making. And of all the characters, you think he would be the last one to have principles, and yet that's what exactly Carson is implying in that speech. So are there any principles or or logic to what Sugar is doing? Nope. (laughs) But does that make him the greatest... The greatest villain mm. of all time. Like, you know, he's been put in that conversation. It's not an antagonist. It's a villain. Right. And that's, in itself, is an elevated word. He really, truly is just the pure depiction of evil. Yeah. And I and I think there's almost a moment where he tries to make that argument himself, and he's completely caught out by Carla Jean, who's basically like, I don't want to play this game of the toying costs. Because I know this this is essentially just an excuse for you to give power to something else as to whether or not you kill me. You are choosing to kill me right now. And I think that that is the closest we get to breaking into the psyche of Sugar. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, is there actually something in him that's trying to justify what he's doing? Does he even feel the need to justify this? Is he Does he actually have some sort of soul hidden in there? So I thought that was a really interesting last-minute inclusion. Did did he kill her at the end of the film? He probably couldn't. He's such a morally broken person that it's like the the moment in Chef, right? Like oh. because he couldn't flip the coin, he couldn't do it. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, that's true. It is pretty vague, to be fair. I I assume that he just killed her anyway. He probably did. And that that would have been as a response to him being called out <laughs> that they just kills. I literally it. had to check what what was the last thing I saw Kelly McDonald in because it was you know who plays yeah Cara Jean and yeah I'm struggling here. Let me have a look. I think she's oh, the... she's, she's actually in Brave, which I mentioned earlier on the show. Yeah. Train Spotting T two and in Wreck It. Are you kidding me? Who's she in? Wreck-It I saw Ralph? three films that she started in the last twenty four hours. <laughs> wild <laughs> that's so funny oh god and then she's in black mirror as well hated in the nation there you go and and the final harry potter oh you know what she's she's a ghost in the last harry potter film i recognize her face immediately she gives harry one of the, not is it harry she gives the like an emblem or a or a necklace or a something i don't know she's around she's she's, she's, she's in been the, doing she's in circulation <laughs> cool <laughs> exactly yeah. i have to say zeke yeah this might be the best film in which a protagonist's partner's mother randomly mentions cancer and then it doesn't affect the plot whatsoever. 
since the room, <laughs> which was only four years prior to this. <laughs> Did you not immediately think of the room and she just starts spurting out, I have cancer, I have cancer. <laughs> it's still one of the best lines in the room. Uh, <laughs> it is. One well, day. She, she doesn't specifically say breast cancer. No. To be fair. We could have done the room, Zeke. As our, we 20, could have, as our 2000s pick. We, we had a conversation about it last week. <laughs> I think this film's so interesting because it's, you know, I don't think we've ever done a film where we've just, like, concisely pointed out everything in the film. Like, the knowledge that we had going into the film. Right. We've just been like, yep, that's what that is, that's what that is, that's what that is. <laughs> I think the, the film is such a... For it, like a Cohen film, which are often quite stylistic and mm. quite punchy, and have these characters that are incredibly bombastic, even in their more darker films, like in Lewin Davis, right. every character is very iconoclastic, very mm. loud um, in their demeanor. Whereas this this film is so dry, but it has these characters that are such interesting psych profiles mm. to to break down. Um, and what's interesting is, like, you are observing these characters that don't talk very much. So you're really... A lot of what you're, in, you're interpolating from the characters is the actors and their physical body language. Mm. And it's even just, like, the way they posture themselves when they're holding a gun against a door or, you know, the way Josh Brolin will, you know, get a bag in the vent and try and take it. It's, just, it's all the micro performances that are going on in his body and exudes like that toughness. And it's the beautiful way of creating tension. This film Mm. is unbelievable with the way, with it using its coverage, its pacing and scenes. Like you said, the removal of the score removes any form of artificial manipulation that we can have on the viewer to create tension. Mm. So everything has to then be told through the camera and told through the diegetic sounds of, of characters groaning, or making even the slightest noise because it's so important, mm. you know. Like you said, you're, you're talking about the vent scene, how they build tension through that scene. Yeah. Or even later in the film when Lewin's in the other hotel room and he's just waiting mm. as Sugar is going from room to room and then eventually opts to jump out the window or jump out and escape, I yeah. believe. Yeah, Um What a brilliant scene. And, like, you as an audience knows, and, again, like, this is them creating tension, is as smart as that character is, he isn't. He doesn't have you know the the amazing foresight to know, unlike you know the sheriff does how he gets through doors, which is that he pops open the knobs. So we're watching it with the tension and knowledge of the knobs about to fly into his face. Mm. <laughs> as clever as his character is, that's a piece of information he does not have. So that creates that extra layer of tension right there. And it's like it's and I keep thinking you know what? I keep thinking of the Dark Knight as well, which obviously came out not very long after this film did. But I specifically think of the quote when an immovable object is... Oh, my God, I'm butchering the quote. An unstoppable force. Unstoppable force, immovable object. And that's what these two characters feel like yeah. a lot of the time. And and that's the quote that, you know, Carla Jean says, and that's that's a debate that they have, um, what she has with, uh, with Ed Tom Bell, is, you know, oh, well, nothing's going to stop at him. Well, nothing's going to stop at my man either. And it's like, well, eventually, something's going to have to happen. <laughs> They're not just going to keep fighting forever. Eventually, someone's yeah. going to run out of luck. Or and I believe killed. that that's, that's the inevitability of Lewin's actions. Mm. Like, he... Uh, Sugar represents the cloud of death, 
basically. And, yep. and wherever he goes, death will follow. Death and chaos will follow. That's that agent of chaos yep. situation. Like you said, that's when um, he sort of meets his Achilles heel when no one plays that game with him. But mm. it, it's not just it's not just a game, is it? It's that fact that simply um, he is this unstoppable force and we're seeing this path of destruction that is actually following Lewin mm. because it's Lewin that's moving. When yeah. Lewin dies, this ends, this suffering and chaos ends around him. And um, it's all the people as well that get in the way, you know, when he jumps in a car, you know, wanting a hitchhike and immediately the person in the car gets shot in the neck and dies. Yeah. It's like, it's not just a path of destruction that sugar is leaving behind, but you know, by, you know, Llewellyn, engaging in this chase because it, you're right it's it's a game but the stakes are very serious and taken very seriously but it is a game in the sense that everyone's participating and it's a deadly stakes and people die in their wake but they're all participating and it really goes back to that line and i keep saying the jackpot when he he wants the taxi to sort of chuck circles around the hotel to see if he's been you know mm-hmm. done and he says, you know, whatever jackpot you're in, I don't want to be involved. And he's like, you're already involved in it. I'm trying to save you. That's that's exactly the type of destruction pathway that's been happening. The only difference is he's trying to save people and he's incapable of saving. He can't save himself at the end. He dies very unceremoniously in a, in, you know, by a pool at a motel. Yeah. <laughs> Off screen. Off screen, yeah. Oh. Which is like the filmmaker saying how pointless his death was or how yeah. how lack of futile this whole yeah, and how game has been yeah the lack of potency there and i think that says a lot mm. too um the fact that the viewer doesn't even get rewarded with watching their perceived protagonist die mm. um not for any form of moral mission or martyrdom but just because their luck ran out yeah. they're inev- they inevitably f- was a sufferance of their free will there was no final deaf speech or monologue you know as he was shot in the head it's like what is there to monologue about you you failed you lost you're done yeah that that's how it ends yeah which yeah. makes the the speech from tommy lee jones all the more potent mm. at the end of the day yeah you know when he's talking about that sort of mortality of his own life but that mortality of sort of that american identity i guess mm. um that like you said makes this film incredibly timeless because our reading of it 16 years later it still sits you know and and if anything lee like what tommy lee jones or bell's um final speech carries resonance and you know if a speech like that exists in the in the novel version because i don't know mm. if it's a direct one for one i think it kind of is i mean um, the last page is that speech um, I understand. Which goes to show 40 years on then mm. from when the 1980s novel came out. Oh, I, th- I think it came out like in 2004 or five. Oh, okay, fair enough. But it takes place in the early yeah, 80s. But even then, 20 years on, mm. the fact that that carries so, so much... yeah. Absolutely. It's probably more relevant now, you know, the state of the world and the increase in violence mm. and, you know, especially if we look at the events of the last five or six years, you know, I was talking about... Yeah. Well, I was talking about political identity, gender identity, sexual identity, and how much these things have turned into such prominent conversation points and points mm. of polarizing differentiation and conflict. Yeah. Um, and 
I mean, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies was trying to do it in a more satirical, self-aware sense, whereas mm. a film like this is trying to show how... Well, it's definitely got, like you said, that capitalistic folk and that the cause of a lot of this pain and destruction is money, mm. um, I believe. Uh, at least that's the consensus. Money, capitalism is sort mm. of there. And we, we saw that with Hella High Water too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair enough. I got to give a shout out. And this could sort of lead into my highlight scene. This is one of my highlight scenes. Is not only the visual storytelling, we've mentioned that quite a few times, but just in terms of there's no dialogue to explain what you're just sort of seeing things unfold, whether it's the characters doing things or crafting a weapon or stumbling upon, you know, a, a drug deal gone wrong. There's a lot of, you know, wonderful things and in how information's laid out. There all, there's all of that. But there are two scenes in particular that I really love because they actually use visual story and, and our sense of geography in the scene to trick us. Mm. And this goes back to the scene we just mentioned with the air vents and the fact that we're, we're looking inside, you know, different motel rooms. And I would reckon this would be my highlight scene is not only just the tension that comes in that scene, but the fact that they're using the samey design of the motel rooms to trick us in the sense mm. that we have less of an understanding of the geography because we're intentionally being fed misinformation about who's in what room and how the rooms relate to each other. Now, this is obviously very common in films where a character's trying to find another character and, haha, they're actually in a different room the whole time. Well, this, I saw something very recently that... Was it Tetris? Yeah, it was literally in Tetris. They do the same trick where it's like someone enters a room and it's like, ah, oh, no, they're in a different room. But this is brilliant because it's using the room and the geography, our understanding of the geography of the room to trick us even further as opposed to just, oh, you didn't know what was behind the door. It's like, you know exactly what's behind the door. It's just, And they do that same trick again closer to the end when Ed Tom Bell walks towards the, I guess, the apartment block where uh, Llewellyn has died. Mm. And we see that Sugar's behind the door waiting for him. And it's very subtle, but you can actually kind of tell based on the angles that he is in a reversed version of that room, which means there was a 50-50 chance that he could have walked into the room next door and have been killed on the spot, shot in the head. But again, they use that. Our understanding of the geography language, you know, left to right, which way is, which way is the doorknob in this angle, which way is on that angle. It's so clever. It's clever and so subtle. And it plays with your attention. And like you said, with the lack of music, there's so few things to keep the tension alive and when i went back to watch that scene i was because i couldn't remember what happened in that scene so i was you know clenched up like oh my god what's about to happen and re-watching the scene just to check that point it's not to say that because the tension had disappeared that oh well it's a bad film it only works the one time it's like no because there were so few assets at play for that tension which is almost impressive in and itself that the directors can do that without you're right a score or any additional editing fancy tricks, mm. so to speak. But anyway, that would be my highlight scene, is the initial event scene and the way they play with our geography and understanding. Uh, what is your highlight scene, Zeke? Um, I'm going to have to go with... Man, there's so many you could pick from this film. <laughs> there really is. I'll probably opt for... Because I honestly... I would have said going into this rewatch... Uh, prior to this it's that gas station how much you've ever lost in a coin toss scene 
But I think now, maybe this is context based on things I'm writing, which are very retrospective mm. um, recently. Um, it, it is that, it's that bell final monologue and the okay. way the camera slowly pushes it. It's a long, yep. continuous shot. It starts wide. It starts as a two shot with mm. his wife um, and then pushes in. And it's just incredible. Yeah. It is. And it really goes to show, you know, we don't see Tommy Lee Jones in too much nowadays, but... No, not really. He's man. He's a force to be reckoned with. Damn good. Yeah. I can't remember the last sort of melodrama role we had. Maybe Lincoln? Hmm. No, I haven't seen Lincoln still. Oh. oh yeah. PTA. There, there is a boldness to the way they end it, where it literally just ends on the line. And I remember first watching this film being so surprised at how anticlimactic the end. It kind of does remind me of the ending of The Last of Us mm. or Last of Us Season 1, either, either way, um, where it just sort of ends on a word and you're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop a more action-y scene. But it is bold and, like you said, it, it tells the point that it needs to tell. That's all that needs to be said is a powerful performance to the camera and you're done. Mm. So what I, I got to read the book. I would love to read because The Road is one of the greatest books ever written of all time. So just bring quietly car free. Just quietly. No, no. I mean, hey, that's not an uncommon uh, thought process for The Road. And the movie adaptation's not as great. It's fine. Yeah. But uh, considering how brilliant this film is, I feel like I've got to read the novel. Beautiful. Well, No Country for Old Men is currently out on Stan. Mm. And Binge. And binge. If you, if you prefer binge. <laughs> I've got ads on my binge now. You've got ads on your binge? Yeah. As of March 30th, if you have the nine ninety nine a month one, oh. you get ads. I got charged $16 this morning from binge, so I'm guessing that's... That's the not, next tier. That's the next the tier. Free tier. Worth it, though, for that third episode of Succession. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't D- think... Dump, so, dump don't your think... partners, quit your jobs, and watch that episode right now, I'm telling you. Change, like we're changing the landscape of television, folks. Like well, speaking of streaming <laughs> platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week, Jake? Not a lot. you got Seven Kings Must Die coming to Netflix. It's a movie sequel and conclusion to the Last Kingdom television series. Have you seen The Last Kingdom, Zeke? No, I haven't. Mm. I it seems like my cup that. of tea, but yeah. Hmm. I've a... Uh, I've just realised Black Sails nearly go, is about to go off Netflix and I've got oh, still a season to go. So Better get on to it. Yeah, that's going to be my mission tomorrow, I reckon. Pump through that last season and finish the show. Oh, very um, good. Well, you've got a little extra time to do that now, so... Yes. That is very good. Also coming to Disney+, Plus for the first time in 94 years, a newly animated Oswald the Lucky Rabbit short. This is, this is the thing about Disney+, Plus as well as, like... And it's on there. A lot of the classics are on there from, you know, 90 years ago. I mean, Steamboat Willie is on there. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, as in terms of, like, we obviously love film, love the history of film, film archival, all of that, we should really be paying more attention to Disney+, Plus. that it has the ability to restore these 90-year-old animated films. Yeah. And obviously, this one I mentioned is, like, a new one. You can actually find some of the older animations on YouTube, but... That this is really what we should be talking about with Disney Plus more. Not not that like Avatar's coming out in a couple of months, you know. We should be talking about the classics. Mm. You also got Renovations, <laughs> which sees Jeremy Renner get it, 
renovate. <laughs> team up with expert builders to acquire large decommissioned government vehicles and turn them into mind-blowing creations for kids across the world. So I'm guessing this was shot before his skiing accident. Yeah, I would assume so. <laughs> before he got think, severely hurt. I think so. I'm not going to laugh at that. I'm just saying. I think this was maybe shot before Well, he's, you know, he's going to recover, hopefully. He's going to recover. He's going to renovate his body. <laughs> Looks like he's renovated his... <laughs> hey, they did it, Zeke. All right, it's in the logline. They did it. They made the joke. It's the name of the show. Okay, it's not my fault. All right. I'm not, I'm not some sort of sad sack. Anyway. Coming to cinemas... <laughs> Mafia Mama sees Tony Collette as a mild-mannered suburban mum unexpectedly inherit her late grandfather's mafia empire in Italy. I'm keen to see this. It's yeah. Like, it's like the godfather with Tony Collette. She's a mum. <laughs> All of a sudden, she's a... Uh, it's the Al Pacino storyline, Zeke. Yeah. Kind of. Kind yeah. Of. Someone get Dunkin' Donuts in there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Suzimi is from the director Makoto... Shinkai, who directed Your Name, which I hear great things mm-hmm. about, and sees the titular teenager with the power to see supernatural forces on a mission to save Japan from the brink of disaster. This is playing, I believe, Luna. Actually, it might be playing at Hoyts as well. You also got a film called The Innocent, which sees a prison drama teacher and one of her inmates set to marry, and her son gets in the way to see if he is still a criminal or if he is truly being rehabilitated. That's Pretty cool. cool. Yeah. I think it's a... I'm not going to presume, but it's it's a non-English film. It's a clever so, idea. Yeah, no, I like I like it. I actually reworded the logline because it was originally a bit more confusing, but the tension definitely comes from the son trying to like protect mm. his mother and and assure that this is the right thing to do. So yeah, very interesting. And finally, we mentioned it earlier, Zeke. The Room this Sunday, the 16th, it's 20th anniversary screening at Luna. Wow, can't wait to learn more about. That How many spoons? Cancer. Is it Greg coming to that one? I don't think so. He was here recently. Ah, I'll be surprised if he was already back. It was only a few months ago he was here. But hey, twenty Zeke, twenty years since the room. That's wild. I know we've we've lived a lifetime. I had to I had to end that segment on that. Clearly, being the most important thing mm-hmm. to see this week in cinemas. But otherwise, that's all you got, folks. That's all you got. All you got. Well, it is time for us to move into the 1990s. We're flipping centuries oh. in the countdown through the decades. Number four. Um, so our fourth Ivy. annual. Ivy. Um, Jake, we had two films yes. go up for it. Yes. Only one, one came back. <laughs> only one most certainly came back. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit more skewed this one. Not so much as it was last week. Uh, the other film that was in the running was Rushmore. Which, geez, if we did that, that would have been like our fifth Wes Anderson film on the mm. show. He's up there. Most covered director five, on the cinema. Would have been five side. out of ten. I know. And then we've got Asteroid City, I believe. That's we didn't even talk about those trailers. They dropped in the last week. Asteroid City and Barbie. Oh, my God. Let's go, Barbie. Let's go, party. It's going to be wild. Yeah, I'm more excited about that I can't believe Amy Schumer was supposed to be the... I remember that so well. I remember that whole saga. Couldn't think of someone Because she was going to write it as well. That just hurts me. Yeah, and then they sent her shoes as like a a celebration. Like, oh, congratulations, here are some shoes. And she's like, how dare you, I quit. Yeah. And now she's upset that she quit. 
Yeah, because well, everyone's got buzz. Everyone's right got there. buzz now. Well, it, I'm telling you, the buzz is surrounded from Greta Gerwig. That's where yeah. the real buzz is. Like, I know people are confused. There are people who are, like, not really in the film trenches like us that are like, wait, why is the Barbie movie, like, so hotly anticipated? And I'm no, telling you. I agree. The, I agree. Yeah. Like, I was trying to talk about this the other day. I was like, yeah. oh, it's because it's Greta Gerwig directing yep. it, and it was her with, with Noah, Noah Bombach. Yep. And this is probably why there are so many big names getting behind it, and it mm. has this this complete tone to it. Yep. And they were trying to be like, oh, it's probably because of Margot Robbie and stuff. I'm like, yeah, no, don't get me wrong. They'll, sure. get, you, they'll get you in the door. But why this film is actually going to why be... Why film people are excited for it. Yeah, because yeah. if she wasn't there and these were all the names and it was some nobody or a director yeah. you hadn't heard of... It's like the Expendables Barbie version, sort of. It's like, no, we you're right. Just... There's a real director, there's real writers there. behind the film. There's some. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a shoe to drop. That what I love is that this most recent trailer doesn't drop it yet. Mm. You watch the trailer and it's all like pink and funny and cheesy humor and they're all like, you know, they're all moving around like dolls and like the dialogue, it feels like kids wrote the dialogue, you know, ah, what are we going to do tonight? Boyfriend, girlfriend, it's like, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, it's funny, but like that shoot, the reason why film people are generally excited for it is not in the trailer. Yeah. We're waiting for that shoot to drop. So I'm very excited for that. And you know what's funny? When I saw Air in cinemas, there was a new Oppenheimer trailer. And I checked online. That trailer's not up. Wow. Yeah, and it's got... Matt Damon has a big thing in the trailer. It ends with Robbie Downey Jr. in a courtroom. Trailer ends with him saying, Ah, you know what happens next. (laughs) I love the meme of uh, people in the Barbie theater watching Barbie. Yeah. In the next door, the Oppenheimer screening, and it's so loud, the room just explodes. How about <laughs> Asteroid City's just cast list? <laughs> you want to talk about oh out of, your, out of this world? Is that going to be... That's going to be the most West... You, you thought French Dispatch was <laughs> the most West Anderson. West Anderson. <laughs> it's only getting you, more so. Exactly. Oh, I, I think the, tra- like the, the cast list is absurd yeah. at that point, when it was scrolling... It was like the the fact yeah. that you're selling it on the fact that these are all of the people in this film. This is how big this man has gotten. Yeah. Or how much actors just want to be in his Just films. want to work with him, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm very excited. I mean, hey, look, we both love French Dispatch. Yes. Far more than the general consensus in that film. So Wild. You know, we're definitely excited for that one. Don't don't get us squared But I am very excited one. for Barbie. It's yes. going to be some good stuff I already said I will wear all pink and white to the premiere see I was thinking of wearing pink to the Oppenheimer screening and then wearing like (laughs) 1940s gangster (laughs) to see Barbie get it all mixed up I mean see we all have to go as like one big 40 plus group to see Barbie I agree so like everyone has to yeah So if everyone can get in the Barbie spirit too we, we all just that. want to be Barbie We, we want to be in a Barbie world, exactly. Yeah. The cinema will be Barbie world in that moment. That's actually where we do our first live recording, <laughs> is the Barbie episode. during the movie. Yeah. We're just live commenting over the movie, our first watch. No one's in the cinema. <laughs> Shut up, man. <laughs> nah, no one will say that because we'll bring an entire theater's worth of people. Yeah, to that's what I was thinking. We're going to fill up the whole And the then we'll be like, sorry, I know, Hoyts, you've got another screening after this, but we have an hour and a half show we would like to live <laughs> The after show, exactly. I'm, I'm telling you, Zeke, if we go to Garden City Hoyts, there's no one going to the next screening. <laughs> it's just us that day. <laughs> it's otherwise extremely empty. Oh, God. Now, Rushmore lost the poll. It was 29 to 15, so it was a pretty big one. But I'm excited for this because neither of us have seen this film, Zeke. Yeah, it's good. 
Yeah, that we're doing next week. What are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Blair Witch Project. This is my home, which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore The Blair Witch. I can see you. I'm real excited about this. Thank you for I'm the opportunity. I'm very glad. This area's been haunted by that old woman for oh, years. I don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're making a documentary. Not about us getting lost. We're making a documentary about a witch. I don't. lost, admit that first. No, I know we're not lost. They're all over the place. But how do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not going to play with that either. And it's all because of me that we're here now. (laughs) Hungry. And cold. And hunted. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. Tell me where you are, Josh! Three students decide to go into the Maryland backwards to document the mystery behind the Blair Witch incidents. But things take a turn for the worse when the group lose their map. I like I like the the specificity of mm. lose their map. Like, oh no, they lost their map. It's like I can see how that spirals into it. <laughs> terrible things. Um I guess our sort of knowledge on this genre, I feel like this sort of created the found footage genre. Obviously there's paranormal activity. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think this was where it started. Oh absolutely. I think by the time yeah. we got to paranormal activity almost well, in terms of we're talking about the Found footage horror yes. genre. Oh, that's true. Genre. That's a good point. Yeah. It's probably a good way of just... Because at that point in time, because what, Paranormal was 2004? So in that five I think years, it was even later. Even later? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think at that up until Cloverfield, I think everyone just thought, okay, found that's footage true. was yeah, just a horror. It could only be used with horror. Yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't find another way to use this type of... And even like searching and missing like those kinds of films that are based around computer web cameras and well, those that, aren't and horrors. That, and that started with a horror version of that mm, with Unfriended. Unfriended. Yes, yes. And then they went, okay, well, we, we're going to take this and use it in a in a different genre setting. Mm. And yeah, you're 100% right. But this is a pioneer film. Yes, yes. So it's very good to have a look. You know, I think they were really good films to put up against each other. We found Wes Anderson's voice in Rushmore, and we found a whole different subgenre of mm. horror from this film. So they were Very two exciting. good films to put up against each other. Very excited to be doing it next week on the show. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The Blair Witch Project.